0: If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 36
1: fear and anxiety, for Kierkegaard at least, was connected to a deep awareness of one's freedom. And I'm wondering, if we have this deep awareness of our freedom in the world, how is that also complicating our notion of living with fear and anxiety in this current political moment?
0: Y'all, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza is back with us this week. Uh, I I recorded an episode with them... I think I think they were in episode four uh, of season one. They're back, Dr. Robin. I think is is quickly becoming maybe our like resident chorology theologian. Uh, they hold a PhD in constructive philosophical theology and ethics, and they are an anti-oppression, anti-racist, non-binary, transgressive, Latinx theologian. Uh, Dr. Robin takes seriously their call as an activist, theologian, and ethicist to bridge together theories and practices that result in communities responding to pressing social concerns. Uh, Right after we recorded this episode, uh, Dr. Robin was named one of the 10 faith leaders to watch in 2018 by the Center for American Progress, uh, which is a huge deal. Uh, So, I mean, a, a huge congratulations to Dr. Robin for that. Uh, We are talking about uh, new work that Dr. Robin is doing around the tyranny of the now. Uh, And I'll let them kind of dive into what that means. A quick note, Dr. Robin is leading a workshop uh, slash preaching uh, in Seattle, Uh, So, in in my ground here in Seattle, (laughs) uh, in a couple weekends, uh, over the weekend of February 24th uh, at Plymouth United Church of Christ in downtown Seattle, uh, they're doing an all-day workshop on this tyranny of the now uh, on Saturday the 24th, and then is going to be preaching uh, at all services at Plymouth United Church of Christ on Sunday the twenty fifth. So if any of you are all around Seattle uh, and kind of want to dive in a little bit deeper to the work that Dr. Robin's doing, uh, make sure to show up at those workshops. I think they're going to be amazing. The audio at the beginning of this interview is a little bit choppy, um, but that only lasts for literally like the first minute, and then everything clears up. Uh, so don't don't give up on on the little bit of choppy audio that's right at the front. Um, not entirely sure what happened there, but so be it. Uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Dr. Robin, hi! Welcome back. Hi there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me again today. I'm super, super excited about this. It's super good to be with you again. Yeah. So, so to start, a question that I ask every, ask every episode, and I'm going to ask you again because I'm sure there's some people who haven't heard episode and these, the answers to these questions always change. So how do you identify? Uh, And then how would you say that your faith has helped form identity?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I would say that I have a complicated relationship to faith and religion. Um, and really always have, um, I tend to lean into being a divine doubter and, really hold up doubt, you know, doubting certainty, doubting normative expressions of faith, um, doubting doubting the, the regularity of the ways in which we experience religion and Christianity. I doubt all that. Um, and that has led me into a sort of orientation of certainly thinking um, critically about religion and faith. But also realizing that religion and theology are—they're both part of the DNA of our society—and so what that has really, I think, invited me to do is to be engaged in what I call activist theology. So my identity, my identity is that of a non-binary transgendered Latinx. Um, I don't identify as male or female, I identify as a trans queer, if you will, and am masculine of center presenting and have light skin privilege, white passing privilege. I'm born of a Mexican woman, not of this country, and an Anglo father. And so I'm a mixed race Latinx with with skin privilege that gets me into rooms and conversations that darker skinned folks um, maybe don't have access to or are suspect if they are in, um, those rooms. Um, and so this is all, this is also a sort of complicated relationship around race, class and gender and sexuality. And so my, my identity is one that is just complicated, I think, which is, which is fruitful. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not demonizing myself, right? The, the complexity with which I live is one that really animates, my greater becoming.
0: Yeah. Cause I think like those times that we have to lean into complexity, like I think, cause so often we want to just sit in the simple, um, and to be like forced to lean into the complexity. Like, I feel like we can learn so much more about the world and God and who we are as people. And like, there's so much in complexity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So much complexity. And I feel like we are really living in a moment of deep complexity um, in our political moment um, that is really impacting the ways in which we understand religion and spirituality, especially for queer people. And I have to say that I have I have just uh, finished up some work in Washington D.C. Um, at the National LGBTQ Task Force, their annual conference, Creating Change, and. I did some pastoral accompaniment work there, and around five to six hours a day, I would be in deep conversation um, with LGBTQ identified people, and and folks would would express to me um, their deep fear and anxiety, and and what I think what I learned from just sort of hearing about fear and anxiety is that this is not isolated to people of color. This is not isolated to white people who are really trying to figure this stuff out. This is not isolated to LGBTQ identified people. This is really, um, a sort of current orientation of, of fear and anxiety that as a society, we are in flushing. And, and I, I have been calling this moment the tyranny of the now and that we are living in the tyranny of the now. Um, We are trying to figure out how to eradicate violence against trans women of color. We are trying to figure out how to really live into what it means to say Black Lives Matter. We are really trying to figure out how to live out a faith in action that that is for our collective liberation. Um, and, you know, I, I think part of, part of some of the work that I'm doing is coming to Seattle to, to talk about the tyranny of the now, both in the pulpit and both, um, you know, on a panel with my colleagues to really try to, um, connect the dots for people, right. Um, that if this is fear and anxiety, that as a society, we are embodying, what are what are the pragmatic and the practical steps to take to to really live out a a more liberatory vision of what of what we can be together, right in community? Um, that is hard work. That is slow. That is slow work, right? Um, I feel like you're doing some of that work with your clients. I am certainly doing some of it. Um, and as I do spiritual direction with people and and engage in one on one conversations, but I, you know, my hope is that we can have a lar- larger conversation around fear and anxiety and the complicated nature of those things. Um, because I think that fear and anxiety, for Kierkegaard at least, was connected to a deep awareness of one's freedom. And I'm wondering if we have this deep awareness of our freedom in the world how is that also complicating our notion of living with fear and anxiety in this current political moment
0: hmm it's hmm. so interesting so so you're saying like kierkegaard connected this kind of sense of freedom to uh, like was it did did a higher sense of freedom go alongside a higher sense of fear and anxiety or were they inversely
1: yeah, I mean the the sort of the heightened awareness of freedom hmm. it 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 produced this sort of existential angst that that then gets lived out as fear and anxiety. And and I think I think I think I mean I kind of think he's right, you know, I think I think there's something to a deep self awareness of freedom that that then shows up as folds of fear and anxiety. And I think the question I have is because we are living in what I'm calling the tyranny of the now, how do we how do we face oppressive structures that are that are death-bringing to all of us? How do we face those not with the existential angst of what freedom can bring, but with 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 a, with a vision toward the liberating horizon that, that we can't yet put into words, right? Like on some level, it's like the eschatological vision of the beloved community. We don't really know what it looks like, but we have a sense that it, that it's, that it may look like X or it may look like Y. How can we do that sort of work without perpetuating the fear and anxiety that is often at the root of, of us trying to dismantle oppressive structures.
0: But it's like such a big question. And it, I mean, I'm thinking about this, like fear and anxiety. And I think I think you're right. Like there's, I think n- kind of no matter where we are in society, I feel like if, if anyone's even remotely paying attention, there's that sense of fear and anxiety and what is going on? Where are we moving? Yeah. How do we, like as oppression has become more and more, Maybe obvious, like, I mean, it's always been there, but as it gets in our faces more, or maybe for some people in our faces more, um, how do we work to dismantle those? Like, I mean, that's what you're asking. And, yeah, like, so I guess I'm, I'm, (laughs) do you have ideas around that? Like, like what is kind of (laughs) right? It's such a big question, right? And I,
1: this, this is, this is my, this, I think this is why I often have a complicated relationship to faith and spirituality and religion is because I just keep bringing questions to the table and, and I'm trying to live the questions and I'm hoping that the embodied work, the embodied life of living the questions helps us get a little bit closer to the answers. Right? So, um, I don't have any hard and fast answers. Um, I, but I'm a person of deep, deep hope um and i know that there are lots of people who don't have hope in the system and i'm not saying i have hope in the system but i have hope that humanity that you and i will learn how to be human again with one another and that that shift in relationality will help animate not fear and anxiety which we are embodying now but will, will help animate a deep sense of togetherness and community that then lays a foundation for collective liberation. And so I think that maybe one of my answers would be, we need to learn to be human again with one another. And we need to lean in to building a togetherness in community. We, we have worked really hard to build community. We've worked really hard to build capacity in our organizing. But have we actually curated a togetherness in community? And if we can do that work, I'm wondering if the fear and anxiety that we, are all, that we all seem to sort of live with and, and that impacts us, I wonder if, if that will help mitigate like if we can learn to be human with one another, if we can learn to build togetherness and community, will that help mitigate our fear and anxiety and actually help us live into a restorative, liberative reality um, where, where we don't polarize the race conversation to black and white that makes Latinx people indifferent, but that we bring together a deep richness of what it means to be humanity with one another and weave together this togetherness. Uh, that's one of my answers. Um, and I tend to be an idealistic person that sort of hopes against all hope. Um, and I find myself curious of if, is this possible?
0: Yeah. Like I'm hearing this, I'm hearing relationality, humanity, togetherness, community, like this, this real sense of people coming together and, and truly coming together. Um, and I, I think this, this this kind of bringing me back to our last conversation of where I think we were talking about kind of radical flourishing and particularity and yeah. how all of those things have to like there has to be space for the particular um, in the midst of the communal um, and 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 I think I'm, I'm curious about like. I mean, this even my mind is going a lot of different directions, but this even makes sense from like a psychological perspective of like thinking about like fear, anxiety. A lot of those things that we use, like those are feelings that oftentimes we self medicate, um, and we'll use all sorts of things to try to fill. Um, Yeah. And when we look at so many addiction cycles, so many of those stem from a lack of connection with other people, a lack of being able to see humanity. Um, I think those things kind of like tie hand in hand of what does it look like to come together?
1: Yeah. What does it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that we, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to, I'll go back to a sort of my earlier comment about we are failing to be human with one another. We don't have a togetherness in community. Um, and so the, the, the work around shifting relationality and enacting a deep sense of radical flourishing I think I think it starts with ourselves right and it it starts with us asking the hard questions about who we are and how do we know I've I have I have done this workshop in various places and really asking the hard questions who am I and how do I know and then how do I take that information and then create a relationship a friendship or a comradeship or something, some sort of relationship from that information of who am I and how do I know? And how do we begin to chart a new sort of liberative human relationality from the place of the I that is connected to the we? And that is that is critical work, and that is also slow work, and then it's for the long game.
0: I think so, so if I'm hearing you well, it, it sounds like, the first step is to create to to come into like deep relationship with our own selves and our own stories and I mean, particularity and not not to overuse that word, but like that relationship comes first in order to be able to enter into a communal relationship. Am I am I hearing that right?
1: Yeah, uh, and I think I think for for uh, many of us, we don't know our own stories. Yeah, and and figuring out how do we narrate our own stories? How do we love ourselves into our story? How do we be reconciled in our own story? That is deep, deep work that is real slow.
0: How do we love ourselves into our stories? Yeah. That's, that's beautiful language around that. Could, Could you maybe talk about that process a little bit? Like, it sounds like that's something like a journey you've maybe been on a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I moved back to the South, um, last year and have really been charting my journey around getting to know who I am and where do I come from and figuring out what are the roots, what are the roots of my story? How do the roots, how have the roots been estranged from the now? How can I suture the roots back together together? And how can I really love myself into this story by being grounded in love of myself and love of my story and where I come from? And how can that that sort of ethical orientation to oneself that is that is for you know I'm I'm for the the deep liberation of my people? How can that ethical orientation to self and other help propel me into the deeper work of reimagining? Our moral horizon and reimagining our theology in the public square and reimagining our activism that at root is about revolutionary contours of love, love making. How do we make love with ourselves and with each other so that we can all get free?
0: I'm I'm really curious about, like, I've, I've noticed on your Facebook page recently, you've been talking a lot about embodiment as being something that you're you're working on and working into and kind of that movement out of our heads and into our bodies and and I'm curious if you can maybe talk about how embodiment might tie into all of this as well
1: yeah I mean I I think that so 2017 was the year of getting into my body and and you know for those who don't know I have really lived in academia for since I started college and, you know, I have a PhD in constructive philosophical theology and ethics and really, really came out of academia or came out of my PhD program as a thinking machine. And what that means is that my body was subordinated to my mind and I was severely disconnected. And so last year was the year of the body. This year I'm continuing that the year of the body and slow living. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to body my feelings. And someone offered me that phrase and I was like, yes, that is brilliant. I'm trying to body my feelings. And so when I think about embodiment, I'm thinking about how do I do the deep integrative work of thinking, of feeling, and of heart work that helps animate a becoming being that connects with both theory and action and is that and, and that work of bodying my feelings i think is actually the deep translation work of of living theory into action um and 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 that work is like the deep embodiment work of reimagining reimagining embodiment from a queer standpoint that that holds together both thinking and feeling in deep ways um, And I, I really actually like the term enfleshment over embodiment because I think flesh flesh is the largest organ that that we have and it's porous and so it takes in stimuli and it takes in um, liquid and it etc and so our flesh is constantly absorbing and so, What does it mean to actually absorb ourselves and the world around us in a way that helps us all get free? That that's that's I think what I'm trying to get at.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about as as we talk about like fear and anxiety and bodies, like those are sensations that I think both fear and anxiety are very somatic sensations we, we feel them deep in our bodies yeah when they're with us um i i, I guess i'm wondering as you've as you've done this work of, of really trying to in flesh uh and, and get into your body have you noticed a shift in your own fear and anxiety um or do you have a different relationship with it
1: yeah i mean i i feel like i feel like my motto for the past two years has been trying to help the movement at large learn how to take siestas. And, and so I think that my, my literal, the literal, the literal act of, of laying down putting my phone on do not disturb of closing my eyes and of coming to a standstill. Right. Um, finding finding the peace within the chaotic moment you know there's always going to be email there's always going to be text messages there's always going to be social media and for a minute at least for an hour for me for an hour i unplug and that practice of unplugging the deep intentional work of unplugging of taking a siesta has radically shifted how i think about who I am. Um, It's radically shifted how much anxiety I bring to the work. Um, I think it's also helped me learn how to be both compassionate with myself and, and that sometimes there's not enough time in the day to get everything done and that that's okay. So I've learned how to have compassion on myself and I've learned how to have compassion on others. And and that has really come from taking a siesta, and 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 this year, you know, not only is this year like the year of getting into my body and bodying my feelings, but this year's theme is slow living. And so, how do I really do the deep intentional work to build traction to really live in to live into the work of what it means to take a siesta um, and really hold that space, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really revolutionized my relationship to the fear and anxiety, um, and to the work, you know, I, I, I stay very busy. Um, and what I want, what I want so bad for folks is I, I want us to be free from the fear and anxiety that animates how we are in the world And, and for a lot of us, we live with, many of us live with PTSD and a hypervigilance that will never go away. Um, but my deep invitation to folks is to learn how to hold space for yourself. For me, that's the siesta and then, and then embody life from, from that place I don't know if that makes
0: sense to you. Yeah, I mean, it does. Like, I think uh, as you're talking, I'm kind of getting these ideas of, you're talking about the tyranny of the now and and fear and anxiety. And and I think oftentimes in those feelings, like make us feel like we have to keep doing more. We always have to do more. We always have to keep going. And as you're talking about siesta, even the concept of kind of Sabbath came to mind of very intentional breaks that are Mm -hmm. built in in a rhythm and consistent way um, that's vastly different from feeling like we have to keep going and keep piling right Um, it sounds like a very different way of living
1: yeah I mean I I mean I'm trying to live differently Mm -hmm. in a world of fast-paced production that constantly that constantly demands my my investment in the work, um, I think I think if we capitulate to neoliberal capitalism, um, we don't we actually don't do the deep relational work. And it's the de- it's the deep relational work that I am trying to do, both as a theologian and ethicist, um, and help us reimagine how do we think about I mean. I am trying to help people reimagine how we think about our relationship to the divine, to God, to however you want to name that. Because I think I think there's been a religion imposed on us, right? The, we've been colonized. Our minds, our spirits, our hearts have been colonized. This is part of the tyranny. It shows up in our policies. It shows up in our politics. It shows up all over our government. And so how do I help people reimagine their relationship with them with them with themselves and spirit or divine and some of that is the slow work of getting to know, getting to know your story and learning how to be compassionate with yourself which for me has been the siesta and so it very much is a sort of sabbath like how do we hold sabbath how do we how do we create and curate the practice of sabbath um what does that look like right i mean like one of the things that i am doing in community is developing a sustainable relationship with food for example like believe it or not it's hard for me to eat three meals a day why because because i'm so busy right so how how do i and that's impacting me right like that's harming me so how do i actually build in social practices that help me care for my body my spirit and my mind and my heart, how do I do that in ways that will help me live out a more robust theology and ethics that, that sort of that focuses or hinges on collective liberation?
0: The, the word care came to mind it sounds like and and like careful and it sounds like a very intentional effort to bring care into your relationships with yourself with how we consume with how we work with other people it's a it's a care-filled
1: step yeah i mean i think that we we are not socialized we are not socialized to be careful with people or with ourselves right um and as much as I try, as hard as I try to name what I can do and what I can't do, right? This is boundary setting. And Brene Brown does a great sort of thing around this. Saying what you can and can't do is our work right now. And if we can figure out what we can and can't do, if we can figure out how to draw boundaries, both in relationships and in organizing um. We can maybe figure out how to both care for ourselves and care for others and be careful with ourselves and be careful with others. But without that, I mean, that's deep relational work, right? But but really, we're socialized into this sort of transactional relating that has no regard for ourself or the other. Um, and I think that's our work today. That's, it's our work today in the tyranny of the now.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so... So as I'm as I'm kind of digesting all of this I'm kind of I'm kind of hearing you you paint this picture of this idea of a way forward towards collective liberation deals very much with slowing down tuning into ourselves tuning into other people and focusing in on togetherness community humanity like yeah, those those words yeah. that you you've said and um that that's kind of the way forward. I think I'm curious, you, you talk about like a, like a theology of collective liberation, and then you've used the idea of love several mm-hmm. times. Could you talk more a little bit about that from a, like maybe a theological perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, so much of our work right now is the work of love. Um, and which, in in many respects, you know, Kierkegaard wrote Wrote a book on on this, um, and I'm not a Kierkegaard scholar, and so I don't want to go down that that road. But what I do want to say is that love making in the tyranny of the now, finding the folds of love and care, affection and intimacy, which doesn't necessarily have to be romantic, um, but loving ourselves and loving our neighbor is I think a first order act when it comes to theology and ethics, because loving ourself and loving our neighbor is a direct reflection of our ability to be engaged with the source of all things or God or, or the divine. Um, And it's, it's something like, you know, curating the garden of our life. It goes to how do we tend to the roots of our own self? Um, You know, the, I mean, I, I said this earlier, if we don't know how to love ourselves into our story, we often don't know how to love ourselves in relationship to other people. And so what happens is our relationships become transactional and we often perpetuate a politics of disposability over against the deep relational work that, um, that needs to be done. And so I think, you know, loving, loving in revolutionary ways is in, in some part the careful negotiation of, of curating heart space with people that, that isn't reduced to romantic love Right. It's reimagining friendship as a primary orientation to be in the world. Um, I think it's something that Latinx people do really well. Um, You know, friendship for Latinx people is taken very seriously. And and in many respects, the comrades that people have um, in and throughout Latin America, those relationships sort of fortify and animate the work in the world. I think in this country, we have not taught each other how to be friends well, right? We don't know how to do friendship. And as a result, we don't know how to love. And if we don't know how to love, then we actually don't know how to be connected to ourselves, to our neighbor, or to a divine source of all that is. Um, and, you know, we are pressed upon at every side in this tyranny of the now. And so we are. we often find ourselves having to capitulate to the logic of dominance or the logic of white supremacy um, at the expense of loving ourselves and our neighbor um, and figuring out how to suture those roots and suture um, the relationships. Not put a Band-Aid on it, but really do the careful healing work um, is... Is the deep embodied, enfleshed practice of loving? I think
0: it's it's interesting that you mentioned the work of Brene Brown because I think as you as you talk about love, like a, a quote from her came to mind of, like she says, like in her research, we we cannot love other people more than we love ourselves, and we cannot have compassion for other people more than we have compassion for ourselves. Like there will always be a breakdown at the point right. of where of. Of our ability to do that for ourselves. Um, and that's so interesting, because I think so often we think like, oh, I can love other people better. Like, I'm so much yeah. better at loving other people than loving myself. But when it really comes right down to it, like, that's not
1: actually true. Not true. Yeah. I mean, our our work, our work, our work is to love. And that love shows up in lots of different ways. Sometimes it means sitting down for tea with people. And sometimes it means learning when to give people their space, right? Like both, both are actions of love and it's the hard work, right? It's a hard work of becoming, it's the hard work of learning to um, be human in the world and learning how to be human with others. Yeah.
0: Which is so hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: It, it requires so much of us.
1: Yeah. And I, and there's no easy answer, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, our conversation can help animate a conversation at best. It's not going to solve the problem, right? Because there's, this is millennia of work that needs to be done. Uh, repair work, right? Um, this is why reparations are is so important. Um, how do we do the, the deep reparative work in humanity? Um, And how do we start that work now and not wait, right? We can't wait for our political regime to change. We can't, I mean, we can't wait for the police to stop executing black and brown people. Like, we can't wait for that. We need to begin to shift, do the internal shift in ourselves and do the deep shift in community. And I think shifting that, right, that's a paradigm shift around relationality. And it also helps. I think it helps lay some some seed work some seeds for building a togetherness in community um, i I may not see it in my lifetime, but I can sure as hell begin to deeply commit to to this work of loving myself into my story so that I can love in the world or love in action in the world
0: yeah it's like i i I get this sense of kind of great spaciousness in this vision and within you, within this conversation, like there's something really wide in it that is beautiful.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's something really that comes to my mind that really, I think is interesting here. Um, In, in the tradition of theology, (coughs) excuse me, in the tradition of theology, um, Thomas Aquinas recovered Aristotle's philosophy and and there were three things that Aristotle talked about and that they are called the three transcendentals truth, beauty, and goodness. And there's something there's something about those three things, those ideas. I really believe ideas can change the world. And if we begin to live as if those three transcendentals were actually imminent practices in this world we might see a revolution of, of love. We might see a revolution of change. We might see a revolution of, of bringing collective liberation to the fore. But as long as we relegate ideas to just ideas, then we're actually not going to do the deep relational work that I think this moment in time is calling us to
0: do. It's, it's so interesting. My mind is, is going to a class that I took in seminary called Beauty, Brokenness, and the Cross. And it was kind mm-hmm. of all about looking specifically at art and beauty and, and the ways that it can be used to do transformative theology in the world. Um, but that idea of beauty, I think, is so often overlooked. Yeah. what is What is beautiful?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the old adage is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder but what happens when the beholder is the the dominant form of society that actually demonizes the minoritized and how do we how do we reimagine beauty you know what what about wounded beautiness you know wounded beauty um what about beauty that that helps animate deeper contours of love and devotion. Um, What about, what about the fragrance of humanity that helps, that helps us reimagine beauty? I mean, I, these are just questions that I have and I don't have any answers. Right. Um, yeah, beauty, beauty is something that can help enact radical social change. And I think when we begin to, to tie together, um, beauty to truth and goodness, right? These are, to me, it's an it's a ethical orientation. And, and when we allow for truth, beauty, and goodness to materialize on a plane of eminence, we begin to see not only the politics of radical difference, but this sort of horizon of radical flourishing. Um, I think that's our work in this moment. Hmm. Well,
0: we're out of time um sir it's it's always such a pleasure to sit down with you like um to wrap up is there anything else you you want to share with us like or i mean
1: i i mean i just want to say i you know i love hanging out with you and you know i love the fact that i'm headed to seattle to hang out with with your people up there um and i'm i'm real excited to see um both how our our people in the LGBTQ community um, engages with this question of fear and anxiety, um, and also to figure out how do we animate truth, beauty, and goodness on the ground.
0: Uh, Well, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing you. Uh, Yes. And um, thank you so, so much, Dr. Robin.
1: So good to be here. Thanks so much.
0: You can keep up with Dr. Robin's work by checking out their website over at iRobin.com. That's Robin with a Y, R-O-B-Y-N. If you're not near Seattle, check out their schedule on their website. Dr. Robin travels extensively uh, and does work all over the world. Uh, they might be near you soon. Uh, they also have Twitter and Instagram at iRobin. Chorology is on Twitter and Instagram at chorologypod or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from Natalie England, Sean McDorman, Tim Schrader, and 45 other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can join them, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support Querelogy is by leaving a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. Until next week, y'all. Bye!